if you'd like to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3 on page 451. Proverbs 3, verse 21. My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbour, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you now have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbour who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. Do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways, for the Lord detests a perverse man, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's cure is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. The wise inherit honour, but fools he holds up to shame. Our next reading is James chapter 4, page 855. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says... God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Thanks, Mike. Please keep your Bibles open there at James uh, chapter 4. If you're new, we're in the middle of a series on James. Uh, it's a pretty tough book. It's pretty hard-hitting. Uh, James is all about um, challenging us, really, to live authentic 
Christian lives. Uh, James, who's the brother of Jesus, is writing to a church and he's saying, I'm not interested in a faith that is fake. Uh, stop saying you believe in God if, if your lives don't match up. Stop confessing with your lips that Jesus Christ is your Lord if actually you're not living out your faith. He's saying, what I want to see in your life is real faith, genuine faith, living faith, a faith that God loves. It's tough, isn't it, living as a Christian in the world? We live in the world, we're bombarded by the world, it's really tough to keep living for Jesus. And that's why this book is just so practical and so challenging. I'm going to kick off tonight by getting you to think about how you view your relationship with God. So if I said to you, finish this sentence, my God is my, my God is my, what would you put at the end of that sentence? My God is my creator. If you see God as your creator, then immediately you say, wow God, you are so mighty, you are so big, and I'm just a creature, and I just stand in awe of you. How about my God is my king? If you see God as your king, then actually you say, you're the boss, uh, you're on your throne, and I just submit to you. You could say, my God is my, my shepherd. That's beautiful, isn't it? The idea that God's our shepherd, and we're just his sheep, and he cares for us, and he knows us, and he loves us. My God is my judge. You know, he's on his judgment throne and I will, I will answer before him one day. See, the way that you answer that question will actually influence the way that you live as a Christian. The way that you see God will influence the way that you live as you walk with him day by day. Now let me give you a shock tonight as to what word you could put there as to how God describes his relationship with you from James chapter 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Uh, throughout the letter, James has been calling the church, my brothers and my dear brothers and my beloved. And he looks at the church, he looks at Christians, he looks at you and me, and what does he call us in verse 4? You adulterous people. Uh, you adulterers, he says. Uh, he's not talking about sexual misconduct. He's not saying you've been unfaithful to your spouse. He says, you are like an unfaithful wife. The, the word is literally adulteresses, the feminine. He looks at his church and he says, uh, you're my bride, uh, you're my wife, and you've been unfaithful to me. Do you get it? You could put there, my God is my... My husband. Because that's how he describes his relationship with you and with me. I've chosen you, I've taken you, I've committed myself to this forsaking all others, exclusive relationship with you. I'm your husband and you're my wife. Whether you're single here or married or divorced or whether you're widowed, whether you're male or whether you're female, God looks at you as his wife. Yes, he says adulteresses. Yes, he calls it unfaithful. We'll look at that in a minute. But please grasp this beautiful concept that God calls himself your husband. It's throughout the whole Bible. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Your maker is your husband. 
the Lord Almighty is his name. Jeremiah 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. Or that beautiful picture in Ephesians 5 where he says, this is Christ and he sees the church as his, as his bride. Christ is the groom, the church is his bride. Or, or at the end of the Bible, Revelation, you know, the, the great wedding feast? We're going to be dancing and we're going to be feasting with the groom who's Christ and we're just the bride. Now do you get it? God has committed himself in this most beautiful, intimate love relationship with you. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can say, my lover, my companion, my spouse, my husband is God himself. That's the kind of relationship God wants to have with you. Let's unpack it a bit more. A human marriage relationship. What's the basis of a human marriage? You don't just take out a business contract, you know, with an opt-out clause. You stand here in church and you say, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. You give your whole being to the other person. In a marriage, it's based on commitment. There's no, no opt-out clause. You're committed to making it work. It's about communication. It's about listening. It's about talking. It's about understanding. It's about love, isn't it? Selfless, sacrificial love. It's about intimacy, sexual intimacy, emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy. And that's a human marriage relationship. And God takes that and says, that's like me and you. I'm committed to you. I give all of myself to you. I love you. I'm intimate with you. And if you've understood this, my friends, and those words, you adulterous people, they make so much more sense and you'll feel the weight and you'll see the heartbreak that God feels when we turn our back on him and when we flirt with the world and when we commit spiritual adultery. I know some of us here have suffered adultery within marriage. Uh, Please forgive me if I'm being insensitive. But the pain and the heartbreak and the grief and the betrayal and the, the vulnerability that you feel when the person who had committed their life to you walks away. And then hear the words, you adulterous people. Adulterers. Because every day we break God's heart. Every time we're unfaithful to him and every time we flirt with the world and we side with the world and we mess around with the world and we act as though God doesn't matter. And God says, I'm your husband. You're my wife. Jeremiah, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. And James 4 says, you adulterous people, you unfaithful wives, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? You like having love affairs with the world and you're breaking your marriage vows and you do it every day. We do, don't we? We live in the world, we're bombarded by the world, we're enticed by the world. It's that constant drip, drip, drip effect on our lives. So we start to act like the world and think like the world and speak like the world and we just flirt with the world. And if you don't believe me, how would you answer these type of questions? If I said to you, how would you define success in your life? We're very quick to use worldly things like jobs and houses and relationships and, and God calls for faithfulness. That's the mark of success. 
Where do you find your security? Where do you run for to affirmation? All those kind of questions were revealed. Actually, we're just so shaped by the world. It's what James calls friendship with the world. Verse 4 again, you adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? That word friend is people that you hang out with, it's people who influence you, it's people that you listen to, it's people who shape your thinking. And James says you cannot have, listen carefully, you cannot have an intimate love marriage relationship with God as your husband and an intimate friendship with the world. It just doesn't work. You've got a choice. You can be faithful to God and honour your marriage vows to God, or you can choose, look at that word, choose to be a friend of the world. Don't try hiding it with God. Don't play games with God. You know, don't almost like try and turn around your engagement ring or your wedding ring and pretend you're not married. He says, I see you every day and you're mine and I love you, so stop flirting with the world. Do you remember that interview that... Uh, Princess Diana gave just before she died. She talked about her marriage to Prince Charles and his friendship with Camilla. And she said these famous words, there were, there were three of us in his marriage. And God kind of looks at you and I and says, there's no room for three of us. It can't be God, me and the world. It's just me and you and no world. Because if you choose to be friends of the world, verse 4, you become an enemy of God. It's that subtle, persuasive, dragging you away from God. And I've seen it time and time and time again. There's a guy in the Bible called Demas. He lived with Paul, he went on missionary journeys with Paul, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4 it says these words, Demas, because he loved the world, deserted me. I think of Dave who loved the women of the world and so walked away from Christ. Grace who, who loved the popularity of the world and so walked away from Christ. I could just name lots of people. And my question is, was it that the world was so enticing or was God just not important enough to them? Surely they saw how, how superficial and shallow and empty much of what the world has to offer. And I reckon this is the problem. That deep down we have not grasped the intimate relationship that God longs to have with us. We don't see how beautiful he is and how faithful he is and how his heart longs and yearns for that all-exclusive relationship with you. Because when you grasp that, the world is not enticing anymore. And I want you to grasp that before we look at the passage because otherwise it will just be me hamming you again saying do this and don't do this. I've used the word flirt because I think that's what we do. We talk about God and we quote the Bible but we just don't do it and we play games with God. What's the cause? What's the cause of flirting with the world? The cause is this. It's, um, it's just your selfish desires. That's what causes you and I to to flirt with the world every day. Look at verse 1 with me. James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes all this worldly behaviour? Don't they come from your desires, literally your pleasures, your hedonism, the battles within you? 
That's the word hedonism. It's that pleasure that is so centred on self, on me, on my gratification and my fulfilment, and me, me, me. It doesn't matter what other people think as long as I'm happy. That's basically the, the cause of a human affair, isn't it? I don't feel fulfilled in this marriage and this other person makes me happy and I'll just forget my marriage vows and forget the covenant. It's just pure selfishness. And we are so wrapped in what we want and when we don't get it, we just act like the world. Verse 2, you want something but you don't get it. You kill and you covet but you cannot have what you want and you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. Let me just reread verse 2 literally. I think it makes more sense literally. It says, you want something, but you don't get it, and so you kill. Not literally, but you, you, commit, you commit murder in your heart. You get angry because you can't have what you want. You covet, but you can't have what you want, and so you quarrel and you fight. Somebody else has got something that you want, you cannot have it, and so with your words and with your actions, you quarrel and you fight. And we're just like little kids, aren't we? A little five-year-old who desperately wants this toy that they cannot have, and what do they do? They stamp their feet, they scream and they shout, and they just moan and they groan until they get it. And that's just us and God. There's things in the world that we really, really, really want, and we know that we shouldn't have them because God says we shouldn't have them, but hey, I really want it. And so I'm not going to stamp my feet and scream and shout. I'll just manipulate. Or I'll just quarrel and I'll fight and I'll get what I want and just pretend that God can't see. What's the sign that you are full of selfish desires and that you're quarreling and you're fighting? It's horizontally, it destroys your relationship with other people. If you keep flirting with the world, it will destroy your relationship with other people. Because if you act like the world, and if you want things like the world, you just end up quarrelling and fighting and slandering and harsh words and factions and criticisms and backbiting and bitching. Verse 1, what causes the fights and what causes the quarrels? We'll look down to verse 11. He says, brothers, don't slander one another. Stop it. Stop the infighting. It's just so worldly. And we say, oh, it's nothing personal. I just don't like the person. And God says, no, it is personal. It is personal because every time you put someone down, you're actually elevating yourself. And every time you slander them, you're just promoting yourself. And every time you gossip, you're making yourself look good. It is personal. You're just being worldly. And that's why James says, you adulterous people, you're flirting with the world. More than that, he says, you're just playing God. Because verse 11, anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges the law. You put yourselves above the law, you say, I'm bigger than God, I'll put myself on the judgment seat and I refuse, verse 12, to love the neighbour of myself. I'm not going to do it because I know better than God. And it's called worldliness. It destroys relationships. It destroys your relationship with God. It's like any marriage relationship. You know, in a marriage, you've got to spend time together and you've got to talk. You've got to communicate. You can't just live in the same house and not talk. And James says in the end of verse 2, you've stopped talking to me, haven't you? 
You stop talking to God. You don't have because you don't ask God. He's kind of saying your prayer life, the time you spend on your knees with God, that will show whether you really do love God as your husband. Whether you've understood that he's your husband and you're his wife because you've got to talk. You've got to spend time talking, communicating and listening and learning. See, when you stop praying, that's a really sign, that's a real sign that you are slipping into worldliness. Because the world says I don't need God and the world says I can control my life. And we as followers of, of, of God and lovers of Jesus, we've got to say, no, I'm dependent on you, God, and I want to talk to you. If you stop praying, it's a sign you're becoming like the world. Or, or actually, if you stop praying, it's sometimes a sign that you know that what you want is wrong because you haven't got the guts to ask God for it. Dear God, I'm in love with this man, but actually he's married to somebody else. Would you please intervene powerfully to destroy that marriage so I can have him? We don't pray that, do we? Because it's just stupid and ungodly. Dear God, uh, I want to be really, really popular because I want to look good in this church. We don't pray that because it's just stupid and ungodly. Uh, Dear God, please give me that promotion because I want to go on an overseas holiday. We don't pray that prayer because it's just selfish. Uh, James says either you you don't pray or when you do pray it's with the wrong motives, all about self. Uh, Verse 3, when you ask you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Uh, Dear God, I really like that pay increase because I want to buy this house. Uh, Dear God, I need more money, I want to stop giving to the church because I really want to have a good time and live it up. We just can't pray those prayers, can we? It's not prayer. It's focused on me rather than on God and his name and his honour and his glory and his kingdom. Do you see it? Flirting with the world at its root cause is, a, is, is called selfish desire. It's about me and my wants. You're living as a single person pretending you're not married to God. So what's the, um, what's the consequence? How do you think God feels when every day you, you flirt with the world and every day you're more and more sucked into the world, how does God feel? Again, forgive me if this is too raw for some people, but how would you feel when your husband or your wife came to told, tell you that they committed adultery? My guess, if that was me, is I would be angry. <laughs> I'd be furious. I'd feel so hurt and betrayed. My guess is I'd make them grovel and I'd make them earn some forgiveness or earn the trust again. How does God feel? He is jealous. That's the word the Bible uses. The consequence is the jealousy of God. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Whatever you might say about God, whatever you might feel about God, you're living as though you don't love me. You're living as though you hate me. And so, verse 5, do you think the scripture says without reason, the spirit he caused to live in us envies or is jealous intensely? That's the right response, isn't it, to any marriage. When a person that you've said, I'll love you always, commits adultery, you're jealous because they're your husband, they're your wife, 
and you've made that covenant. And, and when God looks at us, he says, I've made a covenant with you. I love you. I've given myself for you. And every time I see you living in my world, ignoring me and flirting with the world, I'm full of jealousy. I love that fact. I love the fact that God put his spirit in me. Verse 5. He lives in me. And so when I live in the world as though he's not in me, he cannot tolerate it. He's jealous. It's a good thing. God chose you to be his bride. God gave you his spirit. He's a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. He can't just shrug his shoulders. He's like a husband who's heartbroken and he wants for and he looks for and he can rightly expect total allegiance and total commitment. I find it extraordinary that my God is so jealous for me. He's jealous every time I step into sin. He's jealous every time I ignore his name. He's jealous every time I give into temptation. Every time I compromise and slip into worldliness, he's there with his heart breaking for me. Because he's my husband. That's the consequence, the jealousy of God. Now what's the cure? God does not, like you or I, rub our faces in it. He doesn't slam the door in our face. He doesn't walk away from us and say, get out of my face, I never want to see you again. He doesn't make us earn and sweat our forgiveness. What I find extraordinary is verse 6. God says to us, he gives us more and more grace. He calls us an adulterer. He calls us flirts. He calls us enemies of God. And yet he says, I give you more and more of my grace. Yes, I'm jealous, but I'm full of grace. Yes, I'm a consuming fire, but I'm also a compassionate and merciful and gracious God. And I'm hurting so much for you. And I love you so much. And yet I'm pouring my grace upon grace upon grace. And it's not cheap, is it? It's not cheap grace. It comes at the cost of his precious son. Verse 6, he gives us more grace, and that's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he does give his grace to the humble. If you will humble yourself before God and say, I deserve nothing from you, God, because I've been so unfaithful to you. If you come before him and say, I'm so dependent on you, God. If you come before God with a humble heart and say, I give you all the glory, and naked come for you to dress, and helpless look to you for grace, then God pours his grace upon grace upon grace on you people. What's it look like to humble yourself before a God who is gracious? It's going to mean two things. It's going to mean returning to God and repenting before God. A sign that you're really humble before God is that you come back to God daily and hourly, and almost every minute of every day. Uh, Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Put yourself under his lordship. He is the boss, he is the master, uh, like a husband who, who knows you intimately, who is so worthy of your trust, who wants the best for his wife. It's so easy to trust God, because he's so good and so faithful. Just submit yourself to him. How do you do that? Uh, verse 7, you resist the devil. He's kind of saying, you know, get rid of the muck. Uh, do the gardening. Get rid of the weeds. Resist the devil. 
Because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. He wants to stop you from loving God. He wants you to be friends with the world. And unless you, my friends, have learned to resist the devil, to resist the prince of this world, and to resist his testing, resist his influence, resist his values, then he will just devour you. If you're casual about your faith, if you make no effort to be different from the world, the devil will not have much work to do to bring you down. You know, I'm not going to go into details, you know the people who cause you to think like the world. You know the places that you go to that cause you to be like the world. You know the internet sites that you look at that make you like the world. You know all these things that make you talk and think and act like the world. You know what they are. And so does the devil. The devil knows those things. And you're just called to resist him to stand firm against him, and the promise is, verse 8, he will flee from you. Of course he'll flee from you. Because 2,000 years ago at Calvary, our Lord Jesus Christ defeated the Satan. He defeated the devil. And you say, no, I'm under the banner of Christ. God's my husband. I'm his wife. Resist the devil. Verse 8, come near to God. Turn back to God, return to God, focus on God, restore that exclusive, intimate relationship with God. He's saying, draw near to God every time you sit down and watch TV. Draw near to God every time you walk into work. Draw near to God every time you go out to a party. Draw near to God every time you're about to go into the world. Draw near to God and the promise, verse 8, he will come near to you. It's that beautiful picture of, of the, the offended husband who just welcomes his estranged wife back and says, I love you. You're mine. Return to God and then repent. Repent before God. Daily, radical, real repentance inside and out. Verse 8 again. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve. Mourn. Wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. He's saying your hands and your hearts, verse 8, what you do and what you think and what you feel, purify them, wash them, cleanse them. Psalm 24 says, who can stand before a holy God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And to humble yourself before God is not just feeling remorse at your gossip, not just feeling sorry for your slander, not just feeling guilty for the lie or guilty for the behaviour. It's about radical, real, heartfelt repentance. It's a language of the prophets of grieving and mourning and wailing. They weren't casual before God. The, the people of old said, I, I'm wretched and I'm a sinner and I'm weepy over my sin, but I stand before you as a God of grace. And a God who's forgiven me in Christ. Let me just try and explain how radical we've got to be. The things that once made you laugh, the things of the world that once made you laugh, you know, the smutty jokes, the gossip and the slander and the greed, they should actually make us mourn and make us weep because they're offensive to our husband, our Lord and our God. And the things that once brought you so much joy, you know, all the holidays and all the, all the gadgets and just spending money for self, the things that brought you much joy, actually are going to make you sad now because what a waste of money. 
and like the repentant unfaithful wife you know with tears and with grief and with sorrow we just we just sit and we kneel and we bow before our god and we say i need your grace and what does he do verse 10 humble yourself before the lord and what's the promise why don't you read it with me humble yourself before the lord and he will lift you up he'll reach down to you where you are he'll give you grace upon grace upon grace and he'll lift you out of the pit and he'll restore you to that marriage relationship. It's the most beautiful thing in the world, isn't it? You ever thought of God as your husband? I don't think I had until this week. He's the one who's chosen me for an all-exclusive relationship. Yet he hasn't taken me from this world, he's left me in this world. And every day I live in this world and I'm immersed in the culture And the answer is not to withdraw from the world. It's not to create a long list of what I can and can't do. The answer is just simple. Just live as a married man or live as a married woman with God as your husband. And wake up every day and say, hey, I'm married to God. I want to be faithful to him today. And God said, I love you. I cherish you. I keep you. I hold you. I protect you. Don't flirt with the world. Please, don't flirt with the world. But you know what? When you do, as I do every day, God gives us grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Let me pray. Your grace is enough. More than I need. At your word I will believe. Oh Lord God, what a mind-blowing thought that you should choose us and covenant yourself to us and commit yourself to us and love us so intimately. Lord, how your heart must break. How you must weep every day when we, we just listen to the world and we think like the world and we act like the world and we live as though we're not married to you. Break our heart for what breaks yours, please. Father, would you please uh, remind us daily of your grace. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, for his death, for his resurrection. Thank you that your grace is all sufficient. Thank you, Father, that there's nothing that we can do or have done that can separate us from the love of Christ. Please keep us humble humbly coming before you as our gracious God. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.